Brothers and sisters, this evening, we're <clears throat> working our way through, again, the book of James. This evening, we'll be looking at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. If you're utilizing a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1012. That is on page 1012 if you're utilizing a pew Bible. As always, this is God's holy and inerrant word, so let us give careful attention to it as it is being read. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Again, Lord, we ask that you would superintend our time Cause your spirit to reveal the truths that are in the scripture to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The 17th century Jewish philosopher Spinoza wrote, I've often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, here he's supposing, and rightfully so, that these virtues are indicative of one who is in Christ, he says, I've often wondered that they should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred. He's talking about Christians, that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their fate. He's saying that that is what is seen most from them. Writing in the 1600s, Spinoza's assertion was troubling then and remain so today. Why? Because what he's saying is true of so many churches, so much so that if one was honest enough to admit it, one would have to admit that there are times when the type of stuff that you see and hear occurring in the church can often make one think, Lord, you said you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. But Lord, have you seen the mess that's around? Have you seen the pettiness and the things that people will leave your church over. Here's a sample taken from Tom Rayner's Church Answers website. It's two incidents that actually took place out of 25 that he listed. Uh, Tom imposes some comments at the end. He inserts some comments in the end in an attempt to make humorous that which is very unfortunate. He says, first, two different churches reported flights fights over the type of coffee in one of the churches. They moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church in the latter example. 
And then he says, perhaps they started a new church, the Right Blend Fellowship. Next one, there was a big drag down, beat down church argument over the discovery that the church budget was off by a grand total of 10 cents. Someone finally gave a dime to settle the issue. The financial administrator left the church. Now he says, I have to admit, this issue is 10 times more important than the church missing a penny. He goes on again to list 25, 23 other real life situations like that that just, I just showed the mess that the church is. You know, I would have loved to have been a fly in the wall. I don't know if many of you noticed, many of you don't notice, but this, the pews in here and the carpets in here used to be like a bright looking orange. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when they had the discussions about putting that in or taking that out because it would have been a great example of grace in the midst of what I would have said looked like something else. So these incidents, <laughs> these incidents make one think, are you kidding me right now? What in the world is going on and, and what's at the root of this? Well, guess what? James has been giving us the answer from the onset of this book. Up until now, however, he's been doing so without using the word or disposition that undergirds it all. The word that's at the root of it all in chapter 1, we're warned against not living according to the word and instead choosing our own way. Be doers of the word and not hearers only we heard. In chapter 2, we were warned against practicing the sin of partiality. God's word has plenty to say from, from cover to cover about this sin and our propensity to entertain it. In chapter 3, we were warned against living through the grid of worldly wisdom and informed of two states of being that give indication of the disposition that accompanies that form of wisdom, jealousy and selfish ambition. Again, all these behaviors have in common the rejection of God, as does the ideologies that are prevalent in our society today. The rejection of his wisdom and the desire to establish one's own way is what is the seat center of them. They seek one's own. Well, here in this chapter, James returns to the issue that he left in the latter part of chapter 4, godly wisdom, and returns to the topic which preceded it, earthly, earthly wisdom and its fruit. But now, in addition to providing some additional behaviors that flow from the presence of earthly wisdom, he reveals the source of it all, pride. Pride here defined as a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. It rejects the assertion of the need to depend on God, pride does. No matter what the evidence to support that reality may be, in the end, it is a, a matter of the heart. It's a disposition. It's a desire to cling to that which is worldly. Often if you get in conversations, apologetic conversations uh, with atheists, you'll find that this is exactly what's going on. It's not a matter of, of the rational truths that are there, but it's a matter of the disposition of their heart and their wanting to be their own person. Again, all these dispositions have in common the rejection of God, the rejection of wisdom and a desire to establish one's way, to seek one's own. In Proverbs 43 through 27, 
The wisdom of God is shared with us through Solomon who wrote, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows, flows the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Examine yourself in the New Testament. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the left or to the right. The same thing that was told to Joshua and others. Turn your foot away from evil. Now notice everything from chapters 1 through 4 that James exhorted us against is included right here in this little pericope in Proverbs 4, 23 through 37. It is obvious that the people in our text were going to heed, were not going to heed this counsel. And so I imagine upon seeing or hearing about this, the apostle James became deeply troubled. And thus he responds in the manner he felt was necessary to bring about the reform in that church. Here's three things we see that he did here. First, he chronicles the state and the fruit of a worldly heart. He describes the things that proceed from this heart that walks in worldly or earthly wisdom. And then the second thing, he confronts the bearers of a worldly heart. And then thirdly, he commands repentance from the bearers of a worldly heart. So first, he chronicles the state and fruit of a worldly heart. He does this utilizing the same method he did in the last chapter where he asked the question, who is wise and understanding among you? This time he asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Without hesitation, we're given the answer. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Because you've rejected God, every intention, every desire is self-oriented. But you see, the problem with that is it's stated, as it's stated in Proverbs 4.23, is there is a way, it says, that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. The way of worldly wisdom is the way of death. The old man, if you're saved, is raging, you see, for the former lusts. As Paul informs us in Romans 7, is out of the entrails of our heart that comes all the fleshly lusts and, and the things, the anger and everything else, the jealousy, selfish ambitions, the thing that we see, all those things proceed out of our hearts, you see. And as our passions are with us, with us at war, if you're not saved, then it's even worse and you hear, you hear God's voice but reject it. Then you're given up the only true source of restraint there is. And so like Cain, whom God specifically warned, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. Sin is against you, but you must rule over it. Cain, as we know, rejected God's counsel, as we often do in effect. He then was rejecting God and the next thing you know, he's being confronted about his brother's blood crying out from the ground. 
Most scholars don't believe that the murder spoken of here in this passage is a physical murder, but we know from Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount that murder goes a lot deeper than just that which is, is physical. Anger and the way you express it and the way you undercut folks and everything else can also be a form of murder. James himself pointed out as much when he wrote about the wiles of the tongue. Now listen, the heart of the proud is unable to do what Paul mentioned concerning himself in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13, where he writes, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be bought low and I know how to abound in every any and every situation, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here is the difference. It is because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul had to get to a place where he recognized his dependence every day, every moment upon God. And the moment he would have walked away, no matter how much saved he was, the moment that he walked away, he would have abandoned walking in the spirit and then he would have been operating in the lust of the flesh. The proud person who rejects God and his wisdom can say no such thing. So they fight and quarrel. And this, by the way, even in household, Christian households, there is where we get now marital strife. Familial strife. The Bible tells us to love, the husbands are to love their wives. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Children are to obey their parents in the Lord. But when we start looking inward and walking inward, and it's not about God and he is not the first prong in the relationship, then the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all those things start coming out. And before you know it, even those of us who call ourselves Christian are in two different sets areas in the room because we don't want to engage one another. Now, that's not an exposition on my marriage. I just want you to know that, okay? <laughs> well, here, he first exposes the pride that the prideful person won't ask. James mentions that the prideful person will not ask. This, again, is so because they consider themselves to be self-sufficient. Do you consider yourself to be self-sufficient? Do you find yourself often saying, you know what, I don't need to pray to God about that. You know, I got it. You know, I'm mean, it's okay. God, I don't need to borrow it. Do you find yourself doing that? Do you find yourself resisting God's prompts to walk in the light of his word? Do you? In the midst of your relationships, in the midst of all the things that you're doing, do you turn to God's word? Do you trust God with all your heart? And do you not then lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways, do you acknowledge him and allow him to direct your path? Or is the strong desires of your heart overtaking you? Is it? Those who ask, maybe under the cover of religiosity, there are some who then ask, there are some who won't even ask, but then there are some who will pray, like the, the Pharisee in Luke 18, I thank God. And you can imagine seeing him praying, but it's under the cover, the cover of religiosity. He really, at the core of his heart, thought that he was all that. And that God, 
You know, he had a special merit before God, but the reality of the situation is he was no better on than the no better off than the publican. And so they, that folk, that person, those individuals, the one who refuses to pray, and the one who does pray, but in a sense of religiosity, they both receive nothing because their motive is not Lord, your will be done. But rather, Lord, my will and my desire be met, after which I will shout my praises from the mountaintop. And that's exactly what the, the, the publican did. I thank you that I give tithe, that I do this and I do that. Notice it was all I. It wasn't about God. Turned inward. James says such a person will not receive anything from God. Now, does it rain on the just and on the unjust. Does God allow those who hate him to prosper? The answer is absolutely. But will they experience the greatest joy of all? Intimacy with God. Being in a relationship, being in Christ, being used of him in a manner that will be characterized as good works. Will they? Not unless they turn out of their pride and humble themselves before God. Never, James would say. James knows this. And I imagine it was out of the abundance of love he had for them that he decided to sternly confront them. You see, brothers and sisters, love does not allow darkness to prevail. Love does not refuse to confront. It remembers that iron sharpens iron. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs 27, 6 tells us. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, we're told in Ephesians. We are to tell each other that which is true. If we are straying, we are to hold one another accountable. That then is what we find here in verses 4 and 5, our second heading, James confronts the bearers or possessors of a worldly heart. Look at verse 4 and 5. They read, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now these are not pleasant words to say or to hear. But James knows what's at stake. He also knows that those who will take heed will take heed by God's grace. And those who won't, like the atheists who are standing in their own mess, they won't. They will do as we used to say in the Navy, as you were. These folks would have been well acquainted, the people who James is speaking to. They would have been well acquainted with the imagery and use of the word adulteress. It was pointing back to Israel's consistent accuracy of engaging in the worship of other gods, of turning aside from God completely and going after other gods and going after their own way. Thus in the book of Judges, for example, we hear, there arose a generation of people who did not know God, and every man did what? What was right in their own eyes. But to what end? 
Time after time, they found themselves in bondage to others. They made themselves friends with those around them of whom God had warned them not to engage with. And they did so to the degree that they had adopted their pagan practices, ordinances, and customs. In short, they had become just like those whom God had declared to be his enemy in the world and of the world, instead of in it, but not of it. Here, James says that anyone who does that, anyone who becomes intimately engrossed in the things of this world cannot be anything else besides an enemy of God. It is a sign, after all, that the love of the Father is not in them, or as the Apostle John puts it, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Folks, right now the world tells us that all truth is equal, relativism, that there are many ways to God, that there are multiple genders, that the chief end of man is to achieve maximum pleasure while avoiding all pain, that financial gain is the end all, be all, this and much more. You got existentialism, you got all these different isms, these state of beings, these ideologies, and the one thing that they all have in common is they rest under the umbrella of secularism. And what do they all have in common under the banner of secularism? They've pushed God out of the marketplace of ideas. God is no longer allowed. Every man is turned to his own as in the book of Judges. In every case, it's what you get. Now, if this sounds old to you, it's because it's actually what happened. If this turning aside and wanting to please self and only strive after what one wants for oneself and to feel like one is going to gain, because that's what the world promises you. When you look at every commercial, what do you hear? You have a right to this. You deserve this. And that's what you hear every single thing that's being pushed out there, right? And it's the same exact thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. Eve was told, you know what? If you don't, there you eat. Your eyes will be open and the world would be your oyster. I'm using my vernacular, right? That everything would be yours. And we know exactly what happened in the Garden. Through Satan, she chose what she thought the world had to offer. And again, we know how that ended. So in the midst of this chastisement, this call out, hope shows itself. James writes, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? Brothers and sisters, the God that created us and breathed into us and caused us to become a living soul yearns to be reconciled to those that are his. Here, he warns, he says that, he speaks that out. Here the word spirit refers to our spirit and not to that of the Holy Spirit. Our God is a God of grace, you see. A God who extends those mercies which are renewed each and every day. And so it is in that vein that we hear that he gives more grace. And so it is, 
He gives more grace and those mercies that are renewed every single day are accessible to those who call out to him and who humble themselves. More grace to those who he effectually calls. More grace to overcome the old man so that the lust, the things that are described in, in the very beginning of this passage are not there. And if they're there like the old man and you hear as Paul said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If like Paul, that becomes our, our testimony, turn right around, Paul did, and the testimony that we can also have is thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We do not have to stay in those sorts of anger and tussles and all the things that are involved and are indicative of a person walking in worldly wisdom. But we have the God of the universe who we can turn to so that we might operate in his wisdom. And I imagine it was with words consistent with those and what James has already stated, that James gives some further hope, writing, Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures consistently make this point. In Proverbs 6, there are six things that God lists that he hates. And right out the gate, the first one is haughty or proud eyes. Self-sufficient, self-seeking that convey the fact that it is the orientation of the heart behind those eyes. It's revealing, those haughty eyes are revealing the heart of that person. That person, as James has already says, will not receive anything from God because they're all about self. And the lust of their flesh is what they're most concerned about. And guess what? That person is in a pretty bad predicament. For you see, receiving any, anything here on earth is the least of their problem. We know that the scripture says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? Here I'm reminded of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. After living it up on earth, the rich man found himself in Hades. Lazarus, on the other hand, found himself in the bosom of Abraham. Being in torment, the rich man cried out to Abraham and asked him for, and for aid by way of Lazarus. Abraham then responded to him saying, Child, remember that you in your lifetime receive your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. You, rich man, rejected God and his guidance while you were living. You were in your eyes self-sustaining, and thus your bed has been made. Lie in it. Your fate has been set. Sit in it. The fate, brothers and sisters, of the proud. These are hard words to hear, just as I imagine Peter's words were on his sermon in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. But in light of what's at stake, can we say it's what we need to hear? And so what should be our response when we hear this? James tells us in verse 7 through 10 where he writes, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, 
and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Robert Shaw, commenting on the 25th chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith in the section titled Of the Church, wrote the following. The visible church is composed of hypocrites and formal professors, professors as well as those that are effectually called and regenerated. On this account, the church is compared to a floor in which there is not only wheat but also chaff, to a field with tears as well as good seed are sown, to a net which gathers bad fish together with good, to a great house in which are vessels of every kind, some to honor and some to dishonor. In other words, there are many, brothers and sisters, in every church who are a part of the visible church, that which you see, everyone who professes externally to know Christ. There are many that may very well not be a part of the invisible church. The people have truly been regenerated, born again by the power of the Spirit, by and through the finished work of Christ. John MacArthur believes that and asserts that, that these verses, verse 7 through 10 then, are addressed to those, to the tears, to those who are social attenders of church maybe, self-reliant, prideful, the ones that start the majority of the arguments and, and all the misfits and all the, uh, the, the, the negative things that occur in church. Now, I got to tell you, none of us need the devil to start any mess. All of us ourselves start mess. So that's a little bit strong because I would believe that all of us need to examine ourselves. All of us need to fall upon the grace of God at every minute, at every moment. And, but as such, MacArthur asserts that James is issuing 10 commands, that is 10 imperatives for them, those who are unsafe to adhere to. It's not an order of salvation per se. It's not a comprehensive, it's not comprehensive in nature. And again, I would argue that those of us who have been regenerated by God's grace can still benefit greatly by examining ourselves in the light of what's written and reforming accordingly through a cry out for grace to walk humbly before God in submission to his word, which tells us that we should submit ourselves to God, yield to his guidance in the indwelling presence of his spirit. Resist the devil, we're told, and he will flee. Jesus did this as our example, and he used the word of God in every single occasion. If you remember when he was driven out into the wilderness and he was tempted, his response was always centered on God's word, and we are to do likewise. We submit to God, walk in obedience to his word, and that is how we effectively would be resisting the enemy. Now, I don't know how the unsaved can do this, which frankly caused me to doubt, as I said, John MacArthur's position. But now we are to draw near to God. James said, do the opposite of what you've been doing. You've been running away from God. No, don't run away from God. Run to him. Hiding from him. Don't hide the way Adam and Eve did. Adam and Eve belonged to God, and when they sinned, they ran and hid themselves. You know what they should have done? Gotten on their knees and begged mercy of him. God says in his word that if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive it. 
So don't run, don't hide, because when you run and hide and you don't confess, you don't pray, and you, you remove yourself from the grace of God, there is nothing left but destruction. There's nothing left but to fall. So draw near to him. Confess your sins as the scriptures call you to. Call out to the Lord for strength and then walk in the faith that you will receive because you ask according to his will. Cleanse your hands, we hear. Intentionally remove yourself from the things that displease God and trust him to give you a desire for the things that please him. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Elijah said it well when he was dealing with his people. He said, how long will you go about limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him in our day and age. If, if God is God and the scriptures is our only practice, our source of faith and practice, then why are we looking to the other things of the world? Why are we looking to the ideologies of the world that do not reconcile us to God, that do not reveal God and do not honor God? Why would we subject ourselves to that same sort of stuff that the folks in the Old Testament did? which was to say that we're praising God, worshiping God, walking with God, but incorporating the gods of the world and the people around them at the same time. We ought not do that. We ought not walk double-mindedly, but rather let us walk pure, blessed are the pure in heart. If the Lord is God, follow him. How How about Joshua standing up and saying, but as for me, and my house, we will serve the Lord. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will, he will, brothers and sisters, not might, exalt you. Again, this is nothing different than a repeating of the Lord's beatitudes that he uttered during his Sermon on the Mount. We are to mourn over our sins. We are to be people that recognize, like Isaiah when he got into the presence of God, oh, woe is me, I am undone. And when we recognize that and we get to the end of ourselves and we fall upon the graces and mercies of our God, he is faithful to grab hold of us and to say, welcome home, or to say, here is where you are, safe, under the shadow of my wings. This is the God that we serve. We should not ever, ever, brothers and sisters, walk away from this God. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among us? Walking into self and away from God. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among us? Giving way to the lust of the old man. What causes us to walk in the opposite direction? Leaning upon the Lord God that saved us. Calling upon his name and walking in the spirit and not according to the flesh. Time and time again when you look at scripture, there's a level of intentionality that we're being called to. We're being called to to step forward just like Joshua did and say as for me and my house we're being called 
like Elijah to be the one that says, why halt ye between two opinions? And then set the example of how to be steady, steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. That is who we should be. And, you know, part of me when I was preparing this, I said to myself, because I wanted to talk about Pear Orchard again, and I said to myself, you know, you might be engaging in some serious pride here with how the way you talk about Pear Orchard. But no, I'm not. I'm humbly saying that we should all look at examples of humility. We should all look at examples of, of people that are submitting themselves to God. And I'm telling you that that is the witness that I see. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about folks around me. If you want any great example of that, boy, it was during COVID when they had the mass, no mass people. I think I'll leave it there. The evidence of God's spirit was evident among us. We were all looking for what was right in God's sight, and God rewarded us richly through that. And through that, we went from what we were to what we are now. And you know what I'm talking about when I say that. So to God be the glory. Commit yourself to serving him, not being engaged in these quarrels and these fights that precipitate out of selfish ambition, jealousy, envy, and all the evidences of the flesh, but gravitating, holding on to the Lord, and walking in the spirit day by day, all to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our glorious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We recognize in ourselves, just as Paul did, that the old man wants to do those things that we don't want to do, and those things that we do want to do, those things we do not do. But praise be to you for your indwelling presence of your spirit. Praise be to you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a guide unto our path. We pray that you, Lord, would grab hold of us, and so as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, it will be so that we are giving up our very wills that yours might take charge. We willingly give ourselves to you so that you could use us as your vessels here in our spheres of influence. Would you grab hold of us, Lord? Would you carry us along? We recognize if you don't have hold of us and you don't carry us along, we would be a mess in no time flat. So we praise you for all that you've done. We praise you for what you're doing and beg upon you that you would continue to carry us as your word is promised in Philippians 1.6. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for all that you continue to do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.